Chapter thirty three, part three of a short history of Scotland by Andrew Lang. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter thirty three, the last Jacobite rising, part three. Meanwhile, Lord John Drummond, who on November twenty second had landed at Montrose with eight hundred French soldiers, was ordered by Charles to advance with large Highland levies now collected and meet him as he moved north. Lord John disobeyed orders, received about December eighteenth. Expecting his advance, Charles most unhappily left the Manchester men and others to hold Carlisle, to which he would return. Cumberland took them all. Many were hanged. In the north, Lord Lewis Gordon routed MacLeod at Inverurie, December 23rd, and defeated his effort to secure Aberdeen. Admirably commanded by Lord George, and behaving admirably for an irregular retreating force, the army reached Penrith on December 18th, and at Clifton, Lord George and Cluny defeated Cumberland's dragoons in a rearguard action. On December 19th, Carlisle was reached, and as we saw, a force was left to guard the castle. All were taken. On December 20th, the army forded the flooded Esk. The ladies, of whom several had been with them, rode it on their horses. The men waded breast-high, as, had there been need, they would have forded Tweed if the eastern route had been chosen, and if retreat had been necessary. Cumberland returned to London on January 5th, and Horace Walpole no longer dreaded a rebellion that runs away. By different routes, Charles and Lord George met, December 26th, at Hamilton Palace. Charles stayed a night at Dumfries. Dumfries was hostile and was fined. Glasgow was also disaffected. The ladies were unfriendly. At Glasgow, Charles heard that Seaforth, chief of the Mackenzies, was aiding the Hanoverians in the north, combining with the great Whig clans, with MacLeod, the Munros, Lord Loudon commanding some two thousand men, and the Mackays of Sutherland and Caithness. Meanwhile, Lord John Drummond, Strathallan, and Lord Lewis Gordon, with Lord MacLeod, were concentrating to meet the prince at Stirling, the purpose being the hopeless one of capturing the castle, the key of the north. With weak artillery, and a futile and foolish French engineer officer to direct the siege, they had no chance of success. The prince, in bad health, stayed, January 4th through 10th, at Sir Hugh Patterson's place, Bannock Burn House. At Stirling, with his northern reinforcements, Charles may have had some seven or eight thousand men wherewith to meet General Hawley, a veteran of Sheriff Muir, advancing from Edinburgh. Hawley encamped at Falkirk, and while the Athol men were deserting by scores, Lord George skilfully deceived him, arrived on the Falkirk moor unobserved, and held the ridge above Hawley's position, while the general was lunching with Lady Kilmarnock. In the first line of the prince's force the Macdonalds held the right wing. The Camerons, whom the great wolf describes as the bravest of the brave, held the left, with Stuarts of Appin, Frasers, and Macphersons in the centre. In the second line were the Athol men, Lord Lewis Gordon's levies, and Lord Ogilvy's. The lowland horse and Drummond's French details were in the rear. The ground was made up of eminences and ravines, so that in the second line the various bodies were invisible to each other, as at Sheriff Muir, with similar results. When Hawley found that he had been surprised, he arrayed his thirteen battalions of regulars and one thousand men of Argyle on the plain, with three regiments of dragoons, by whose charge he expected to sweep away Charles's right wing. Behind his cavalry were the luckless militia of Glasgow and the Lothians. In all he had from ten thousand to twelve thousand men against, perhaps seven thousand at most, for twelve hundred of Charles's force were left to contain Blakeney and Stirling Castle. Both sides, on account of the heavy roads, failed to bring forward their guns. 
Hawley then advanced his cavalry uphill. Their left faced Keppix Macdonalds, their right faced the Frasers, under the master of Lovett, in Charles's centre. Hawley then launched his cavalry, which were met at close range by the reserved fire of the Macdonalds and Frasers. Through the mist and rain, the townsfolk, looking on, saw in five minutes the break in the battle. Hamilton's and Ligonier's cavalry turned and fled. Cobham's wheeled and rode across the highland left under fire, while the Macdonalds and Braziers pursuing the cavalry found themselves among the Glasgow militia, whom they followed, slaying. Lord George had no pipers to sound the recall. They had flung their pipes to their gillies, and gone in with the claymore. Thus the prince's right, far beyond his front, were lost in the tempest, while his left had discharged their muskets at Cobham's horse, and could not load again, their powder being drenched with rain. They received the fire of Hawley's right, and charged up with the claymore, but were outflanked and infilleted by some battalions drawn up en potence. Many of the second line had blindly followed the first, the rest shunned the action. Hawley's officers led away some regiments in an orderly retreat. Night fell. No man knew what had really occurred till young Gask and young Strathallan, with the French and Athel men, ventured into Falkirk, and found Hawley's camp deserted. The darkness, the rain, the nature of the ground, and the clan's want of discipline prevented the annihilation of Hawley's army, while the behaviour of his cavalry showed that the prince might have defeated Cumberland's advanced force beyond Derby with the greatest ease, as the Duke of Richmond had anticipated. Perhaps the right course now was to advance on Edinburgh, but the hopeless siege of Stirling Castle was continued, Charles perhaps hoping much from Hawley's captured guns. The accidental shooting of young Aeneas Macdonald, second son of Glengarry, by a Clan Ranald man, begat a kind of blood feud between the clans, and the unhappy cause of the accident had to be shot. Lochgarry, writing to young Glengarry after Culloden, says that there was a general desertion in the whole army, and this was the view of the chiefs, who on news of Cumberland's approach told Charles, January 29th, that the army was depleted and resistance impossible. The chiefs were mistaken in point of fact. A review at Creef later showed that even then only one thousand men were missing. As at Derby, and with Wright on his side, Charles insisted on meeting Cumberland. He did well. His men were flushed with victory, had sufficient supplies, were to encounter an army not yet encouraged by a refusal to face it, and if defeated had the gates of the hills open behind them. In a very temperately written memorial Charles placed these ideas before the chiefs. Having told you my thoughts, I am too sensible of what you have already ventured and done for me, not to yield to your unanimous resolution if you persist. Lord George, Lovett, Lochgarry, Keppoch, Ardshiel, and Cluny did persist. The fatal die was cast, and the men who, well fed and confident, might have routed Cumberland, fled in confusion rather than retreated, to be ruined later, when, starving, outwearied, and with many of their best forces absent, they staggered his army at Culloden. Charles had told the chiefs, I can see nothing but ruin and destruction to us in case we should retreat. This retreat embittered Charles's feelings against Lord George, who may have been mistaken, who indeed at Creef seemed to have recognized his error, February 5th, but he had taken his part, and during the campaign, henceforth as at Culloden, distinguished himself by every virtue of a soldier. After the retreat Lord George moved on Aberdeen, Charles to Blair and Athol, thence to Moy the house of Lady Mackintosh, where a blacksmith and four or five men ingenuously scattered Loudon in the Macleods, advancing to take him by a night surprise. This was the famous rout of Moy. 
Charles next, February 20th, took Inverness Castle, and Loudon was driven into Sutherland, and cut off by Lord George's dispositions from any chance of joining hands with Cumberland. The Duke had now five thousand Hessian soldiers at his disposal. These he would not have commanded had the Prince's army met him near Stirling. Charles was now at or near Inverness. He lost, through illness, the services of Murray, whose successor, Hay, was impotent as an officer of commissariat. A gallant movement of Lord George into Athol, where he surprised all Cumberland posts, but was foiled by the resistance of his brother's castle, was interrupted by a recall to the north, and on April 2nd he retreated to the line of this bay. Forbes of Culloden and Macleod had been driven to take refuge in Skye, but fifteen hundred men of the prince's best had been sent into Sutherland, when Cumberland arrived at Narn, April 14th, and Charles concentrated his starving forces on Culloden Moor. The Macphersons, the Frasers, the fifteen hundred Macdonalds, and others in Sutherland were absent on various duties when the wicked day of destiny approached. The men on Culloden Moor, a flat waste unsuited to the tactics of the clans, had but one biscuit apiece on the eve of the battle. Lord George did not like the ground, and proposed to surprise by a night attack Cumberland's force at Narn. The prince eagerly agreed, and according to him, Clan Ranald's advanced men were in touch with Cumberland's outposts before Lord George convinced the prince that retreat was necessary. The advance was lagging, the way had been missed in the dark, dawn was at hand. There are other versions. In any case, the hungry men were so outworn that many are said to have slept through the next day's battle. End of chapter 33, part 3. Read by Sibella Denton. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.